I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. I, I'm the host. My name is Brady Huggett, and welcome aboard. So, Happy New Year, by the way. It's 2019. Hopefully this is not dated by the time you hear it. I'm recording it right in the new year, and, and um, hopefully this gets up into our stream pretty quickly. If not, sorry for this sounding dated, but um, the guest today for this show is Chad Womack. Uh, I've known Chad. I first interviewed Chad, I think, in 2017 for an article that we did on diversity in biotech, racial diversity in biotech, and uh, what some of the hurdles are, um, what biotech was doing about it, what biotech wasn't doing about it. And I've wanted to have him on the show ever since then. Uh, Chad is the senior director of STEM initiatives at UNCF. And um, we sort of were trying to get our schedules aligned. What we did was I, uh, he lives in Philly, so I took a train to Philly. Chad met me at the train station. Philadelphia's got this great uh, train station. And he had reserved a room. Um, there's a sort of like WeWork space above the train station where you can come and have meetings and rent out rooms. And he rented one out, and we sat in this quiet space, recorded the conversation, and then I packed up and got back on the train and um, came back to New York. So thanks, Chad, for putting that together. Made it really, really easy. Uh, so what do we talk about? We talked about uh, his path through science. I always like to talk about that. Um, how he got interested in science, where he did his education. Uh, he was studying oncology. He was studying HIV. Um, we talked about him launching a biotech. He's, he founded a biotech, uh, did the whole thing, friends and family uh, round, raised the money himself and got the thing off the ground. We talked about that. And we talked about um, diversity in biotech. And we talked about uh, what the election of President Barack Obama meant for African Americans and also for Chad specifically, what that meant to have a black man uh, running this country. And anything else that you need to know? Well, I don't think so. So here it is, your first Rounders podcast with Chad Womack. Listen up. Grew up in Philly, born and raised, Philly proud, Philly strong. How far from you? What part? I grew up in East Mount Airy in Germantown, which is the northwest section of the city. Well, Philly's a meds and eds town, you know, so that the um, way to look at it is the biomedical industry, healthcare industry, uh, dominates along with the educational institutions, uh, both um, higher ed as well as uh, professional. Um, educational institutions. Um, on the biomedical side, Philadelphia has always been a powerhouse with regards to research. It's the home of the Wistar Institute, University of Pennsylvania, yeah. Abramson Cancer Center. Um, you've got Drexel now, which yeah. is rising in its ability to um, produce uh, talent and also uh, produce products and, and services. There's a big push around commercialization. You have Temple, which has always been a, a strong yeah. Higher ed institution. Uh, so Philadelphia has quite a bit of um, assets. And this we're, of course, surrounded by the biopharmaceutical yeah. industry. Yeah. There's a long history there. Yeah. yeah. Smith, Klein, and French, now GSK, yeah. Pfizer, J&J, uh, AstraZeneca is not too far down the road. Uh, so you've, you've got quite a few um, 
both private sector as well as uh, commercial as well as private sector higher ed. So, but when you were you, when you were growing up, were you aware of all this? Of, I mean, course, you could, not. <laughs> of course not. No. For me, the the uh, I mean, I knew I wanted to be a scientist when I was five, uh, somewhere up between five and six. How? Well, I was exploring the natural world in my neighborhood in East Mount Arian, and I grew up in a pretty stable home. Two parents who were educators, surrounded by a community that was very stable, uh, peaceful, and a beautiful neighborhood. And uh, we weren't rich, we weren't poor, we were right in the middle. Yeah. Um, but I, I had an environment that was safe, and I could, you know, explore the natural world that's in my environment. And so I did. And so they were educators, as in both teachers, or both were teachers. Yeah. A high school or professor or college. Um, or? My mother taught first grade for decades. Yeah. My dad taught. Uh, elementary school. Eventually, he went back to get his advanced degree in education, became associate dean of students at Drexel oh. back in the seventies. Um, but my entire environment was uh, uh, oriented around education. All the family friends were teachers, so so the, they knew the importance of it. You knew yeah. the importance of it. Yeah, and I loved science. I mean, just I naturally uh, had a um, affinity to uh, science and scientific method and uh, for whatever reason that's the way my neurons are connected and of course that has uh, disadvantages too if you might talk to my wife about that but um, like what you won't shut up about science well, <laughs> common sense sometimes does not correlate with uh, 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 scientific uh, interests yeah my mother spent a lot of time with me um, at places like the Franklin Institute so uh -huh. the informal science learning environment was pretty rich here in Philadelphia as well. You have a lot of museums, like the Natural History Museum. So which, you, were, yeah. you were doing that. Your parents were taking you to museums when you were oh, young. Yeah. Oh, man. All the time. Yeah. yeah. So, so you felt like, you know, with, with parents who were teachers, you thought, okay, well, then, you know, college is definitely the thing for me. Yeah. From from your earliest remembrance, that's like school is going to be part of my, my future. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So then... You know, if you're you're exploring your world, you're um, I don't know, you're looking at acorns. I don't know, you're looking going on the woods. What, what are you doing? I used to when I was really uh, little. I used to love um, yes, going out in the woods, but also exploring my immediate neighborhood. And I would look at insects. I loved insects, especially praying mantises. I thought yeah. those were like really out there. Yeah, um, and butterflies and things like that. So I uh, got hooked on that. Um, and then I read a lot. You know, my mother taught me how to read at a very early age, somewhere uh -huh. around three or four. So I was reading uh, newspapers, magazines by the time I was in uh, elementary school. And that grew um, exponentially. I was in very good schools. I went to Germantown Friends School, which is a Quaker school here in Philadelphia. Uh -huh. And then I went to a laboratory and demonstration school called Masterman, which is one of the best in the country. But um, my... this So this, this was a Quaker school? Yeah, GFS or Germantown Friends School is a Quaker school. I, I know almost nothing about that religion. Was it um, Quakers were uh, the group that one of the groups, but they were uh, a, a larger uh, settlement here in uh, the Pennsylvania and to some extent the Northeast, all the way up to Boston. Yeah, um, William Penn you know, was a Quaker. And, yeah, but um, I mean, as far as the school, were they mm -hmm. was that was part of your curriculum also the Quaker religion? No, uh, no. Um, it was just founded by Quakers. It was founded by Quakers, yeah. but um, obviously the, the core tenets of that is religious tolerance. That's why they came here. Yeah. Um, so you have quite a few different types of folks who go to GFS. My kids now go to GFS. Oh, they do? Yeah. How's that feel? Good. Yeah. Uh, like a circle has been completed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At some expense. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so then... Um, I don't know. I mean, you're in high school. You still think science is... is yeah, my, my uh, passion for science only grew um, and became uh, more sharpened and focused as I got older. So by the time I was in eighth and ninth grade, I knew I wanted to be a cancer biologist. And the reason for that is because um, I started reading a magazine called Scientific American. Yeah. Uh, I had my mother purchase a subscription to it. And so I would get, you know, a Scientific American magazine every month, I think it was at the time. Um, I started reading articles by Dr. Robert Weinberg at MIT, who I think is still there, actually. Um, and his writing was so good and compelling about the underlying science of cancer, cancer. that I just was enthralled with it. And I became very focused on becoming a cancer biologist. And I, that remained my focus until I, throughout uh, college, and it wasn't until I got into graduate school that it changed. 
you didn't have, you know, often when you hear this story, it's like, well, my grandfather had cancer, or my uncle had cancer, and that was what drew me in. Not for you. It was no, the science of it. I was fortunate in that we didn't have a family experience with cancer until much, much later. You know, and my interest in science wasn't to become famous or make a lot of money. It was, I really wanted to understand the natural world. And yeah. I wanted to understand um, biological systems and how they worked and how that affected human health. Yeah. So you're thinking maybe like a cancer researcher slash oncologist even. Correct. Yeah, okay. So I could not have told you exactly how those things differed or what the distinction was. Yeah. But I knew for a fact that the end goal, the destination, was to become a scientist that was actually in a research, driving research in a research lab yeah. with a, a portfolio of projects and things like that. So college for me was an assumed because you know my parents went to college and everybody around me went to college. So, yeah. but I was looking beyond that towards um, uh, post baccalaureate programs, either MD PhD or PhD. Yeah. Um, much the choice that I made to go to Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia, was based on not just a strong science program, but um, and a strong academic program. It was based on. Um, wanting to also culturally identify with my own community yeah, um, and not have to make any kind of Faustian bargain between doing well in school and, and sort of not connecting with my own community or vice versa. So uh, historically black colleges do that for African-Americans. Yeah. Um, and it's in that environment that um, nurtured my, my uh, interest in going into research. Can I ask you, so the, the high school that you went to, in Germantown or whatever. What? Well, we moved to from East Mount Airy to Shelham Township, which is right across the street, basically. All right, what's so I went the, to Shelham High School. What's the demographics for the high school? At the time, back in the 80s, um, mostly white. Uh, I would say about maybe 8 to 10% African-American. Oh, so a small percentage, yeah. Now, that's changed significantly. Now it's about 52% African-American. Oh. A very large percentage of uh, Asian Korean Americans, uh, other Asian populations, and um, very small, very very small amount of uh, Latinx folks. It did um, is that because the neighborhood changed or yes. and it did? Okay, so if you let me ask you this: if you had gone to a school that wasn't so dominated by whites, do you think you would have looked at Morehouse still? That's a great question, impossible to answer. Um, I think. Impossible to say with certainty yeah. that I would have chosen that. Would I have looked at HBCUs? Absolutely. Yeah. But because, and the reason for that is because my parents both went to Cheney State Teachers College at the time, now Cheney University, uh-huh. uh, in HBC, one of the country's first historically black colleges. Um, and I was surrounded by adults, other African American adults who were teachers who also went to either Cheney or some other HBCU. I mean, the bottom line is that generation, my mother's generation, that grew up in the 40s and 50s, didn't really have any other options. Yeah, that's right. Very few. Yeah. Um, and in some respect, that was both good and bad. Um, bad in the obvious sense that there weren't a lot of choices. In a free and open, openly democratic society, you ought to have choices. Choices. Yeah. But bad in a sense that <clears throat> HBCUs... Um, used to have ninety greater than ninety percent of the market share of college going African Americans. Now it's less than ten. Really? Yeah. Wow. That makes sense because yeah. Well, well there's more options, as you said, right. but but exactly. still, um, I wouldn't have thought it would have fallen that far. I guess. Yeah. I mean, because you know, th- those are Howard. Those are great schools. Yes, and they continue to be. Um, but you know, they're in a very competitive market. Now. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, they're, that's true. They're, it's a war for talent, and you know, and money actually. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so then that was that was your school, and you thought, I'm going to go there, I'm going to yeah. start with the basics, biochemistry, and then, and did you think that you would actually, because I think you did your PhD there too, right? Yeah, so I uh, majored in biology with minors in chemistry and physics, uh-huh. applied physics, at Morehouse College, and loved it, you know, I had a great experience, great teachers, great professors, in fact, a few of them I'm still close, close with, with, and they're still my mentors, Dr. J.K. Haynes being one of them. Um, and so I had a very good experience at Morehouse. I continued to do research during the summer, so I had a very good experience at Wistar Institute. Yep. Um, I interned at Smith Klein and French at the time. So you come here French. for the summers? Yeah, I mean, yeah. come back home. Yeah. 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 
and eventually became GSK. And so I spent, I would say, three summers throughout my undergraduate um, matriculation going into a research lab during the summer and working on research projects. And that really only um, solidified that that's what I wanted to do. So after that, I applied actually to a medical school, <clears throat> got in, decided to go to Emory in Atlanta. And when I, well, at the time I was trying to figure out was I going to um, just pursue an MD or an MD-PhD? And I wanted to do an MD-PhD, but when I got into medical school, I hated it. I remember that. Yeah, I remember you <laughs> telling me this, right. You hated it, yeah. Oh, I was miserable. <laughs> I was totally miserable. Uh, and it was one of those things where you couldn't be mad at anybody else except for yourself. Because, right. you know, I put myself there. And it was funny because my mentor at Morehouse told me, don't go to medical school, go to grad school. You want, you know, you want to be a scientist, so don't go into medical school. Well, why did why did you? You thought you <clears throat> wanted the experience of treating patients too. No, actually, it wasn't that. It was that I I thought I I needed a more rounded experience in of order training. To, I see. In order yeah. to be a better scientist. Yeah. Yeah. And what I found was, yes, you could do that. There are I have friends who are MD PhDs and, are, and they they love some it. of them went on and yeah. became scientists and I interact with them now. Um, but that the MD-PhD route is a very particular and somewhat peculiar path that is very long. For those who go through it, I mean, it's, you know, you're, you're really talking about seven to eight years of, you know, post-baccalaureate yeah. education and training, only to get to a place where you got to make some choices, you know, as to what route you're going to take, yeah. whether you become a clinician, yeah. clinical scientist, a bench scientist... And then you have to ask yourself the question, well, was it worth all those, all those, those years, years yeah. of yeah. investment? And, and I couldn't justify that. Yeah, and money. Yeah. And so um, I was miserable. I didn't enjoy the medical school environment at all. Um, you know, I was a very uh, divergent thinker and um, wanted to ask why. So you, dro you dropped out? Yeah. Yeah, dropped out. Two, I can't remember. Was it for some reason? I think it was two years, but it was. It, wasn't. it was okay. So I was miserable for two years. <laughs> I was lost for two years. But life I mean, has how, how life do you do that? Do, do you did you go to the dean of the medical school and say that's exactly right? I'm um, I this I, it's just not right for me. I need to go on a different path. And that's say, exactly okay. what happened. Huh. I wrote a letter actually, uh, apologizing uh, for what I thought was a subpar performance. I had like a a BC average. Yeah, and. Which yeah, I could have continued. Yeah. It wasn't that wasn't the issue. Yeah, um, but I was miserable, and I uh, basically wrote a letter and said, "Look, I don't, I don't belong here. This is not really where I should be." And but uh, can you then ask? Yeah. I mean, can you say, "But I think I should be here," and can you help me well, get I, here? I did, and that's exactly what I did. But it was funny because the dean at the time, um, who has since passed on, he didn't accept my letter. Actually, he said no. I think you'll be a great physician, blah, 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 blah. You know, stay in it, you know. And so I spent another year. Oh, you, after the first year you wrote the letter? Yeah. Oh, man. And it was miserable. It made it even worse. So I ended up leaving. But then what was interesting, well, a couple of things that came out of that experience, which were very important. One, uh, I met my wife. Oh. <laughs> so so uh, it was worth something, yeah. It was well, it was more than its weight in gold, yes. Um, and we have a, two kids in the family, and... Thirty years later, we're yeah. Still, here you are. Yeah, but thank um, you, Emory. Yeah, exactly. The second thing that came out of it is I discovered who I was. You know, yeah. I, re I realized that it really isn't medicine; it's yeah. science. And you know, that is not to say that. Um, and I've come to learn about this much later in my life that there are plenty of MDs who are doing great research, who did go through the clinical route and on the other side of it decided to be be either clinical scientists or researchers or yeah. even bench researchers. Yeah. And some of them are absolutely great. So it's, it's not so much um, which path per se, it's how you approach the path. And do you have mentors, you know, along the way who can help guide you? Because you need that. You know, everybody needs that. Because um, you don't know what you it's don't so know. It's so true. You know? um, I have to say, like, you know, I've been doing these for years now, and at almost every point in somebody's story, they say, well, uh, that's when so-and-so gave me a call or asked right. me into their office and they sort of helped push them to the next level. And yeah. without those things, you can be the smartest person in the world and you're not, exactly. not going to get there. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I think my experience overall was a positive one, although at the time it was painful. Who who likes to fail at something? Yeah, yeah. And I definitely felt like I failed yeah. at medical school. But I know this is being here in the first place. And coming out of that experience, it taught me a lot about myself. And so I was able then to secure a research assistance position in a laboratory at Morehouse School of Medicine uh-huh. while I was trying to sort out, okay, what's the next step? I see. Okay. And to your point, a, a professor at uh, MSM, Morehouse School of Medicine, said, Chad, you need to be on this path, not that path. And so I was fortunate to have that kind of interaction with um, mentors who are African-American yeah. and scientists. And then, so Morehouse started, it's for the first time it's PhD graduate program and they were like we want you to be the first, first student, student. Yeah. really the first student yeah so that's amazing it just happened that I was there at the right time yeah 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 and the second thing that happened once I started the PhD program there was a gentleman by the name of Max Essex came from Harvard the Harvard School of Public Health uh-huh. to Morehouse to talk about HIV AIDS now, up to this point, I'm thinking I'm a cancer, cancer biologist, right. whatever. And here's Dr. Essex talking about this um, virus that's wreaking havoc in Africa. Now, this is like 1991, 92. Um, and I'm sitting here listening to him talk about this retrovirus that's causing a major, major problem. And the way that the retrovirus was discovered was through cancer research. Yeah. Because of the um, activity... Um, of the reverse uh, polymerase. Um, they discovered it in a cancer biology lab at NCI, National Cancer Institute, in Bob Gallo's lab. And so the way that they were able to show its activity was to block it using anti-cancer drugs, in yeah. this case AZT. So here is an example of science that uh, provided the context, the environment in which a disco- major discovery could be made. But in this case, it was cancer biology. Yeah. Yeah. Bob Gell was a cancer biologist, right? So you heard this this speech, and you thought, okay, yeah. this is what I... I mean, it was the you know, proverbial falling off the horse on the road to Damascus for yeah. me. Yeah. I was like, oh, wow. I mean, a virus can cause this kind of havoc, and it's a retrovirus? Great. You know. So I knew then that that's what I wanted to do. And so after his uh, presentation, I went up to Dr. Essen and I said, well, I'd love to come to your lab for the summer. Is that possible? He said, sure. You know, just write me and let me know when you want to come up. And so I did. And that changed the whole world for me. Yeah. So that Actually. was that was the end of thinking you were going to be a cancer researcher and you were going to be an HIV or AIDS researcher instead. Right. Um, yeah. So when um, Max accepted me into his lab for the summer, I went up in 92. That's summer between 92 and 93. And I didn't really know anything about... Um, different graduate program. I, the only thing I knew at the time was, you know, there were um, different labs that were working on different aspects of HIV AIDS yeah. in his particular department. And so, and he had a big lab. I mean, it was pretty big. So I loved it because I saw, in essence, the whole world. There were scientists from West Africa, Asia, different parts of Asia, India, Europe, all, in, you know, working on this, basically the same problem. Yeah. And that fascinated me. Yeah, that's got to feel exciting, right? Yeah, being part exciting. of this global yeah. global mind working on this problem. Exactly. Yeah. And Harvard is Harvard. I mean, it lives up to its reputation. Yeah. They're yeah. surrounded by great minds, working on great problems, and a lot of resources. So, uh, for me, that the light bulb went on, and I said, you know, I want to do my research in partnership with his lab. And so that's in essence what my graduate experience was. It was a dual experience at Morehouse School of Medicine and Harvard School of Public Health. And so you would go up in the summer still or just any time yeah, during the year? Initially it was during the summers and when I finished my coursework at Morehouse School of Medicine and then went through my um, qualifying exams yeah. and I had to define what my research focus would be for my dissertation. Um, it was with the intent of building a, a research program that would allow me to do both uh you know, satisfy the requirements at Morehouse School of Medicine, yet do the research at Harvard School of Public Health, and that's what I did. Great. Okay. And so then, uh, I think the next thing that I know, you also had a, you did a postdoc at, um, is this right, at NIH too? That's correct. So, yeah. after I completed my degree in 98, actually 97, I defended in 97, I received my degree in 98, uh-huh. 
I started a transitional postdoc at the Harvard School of Public Health and the Harvard AIDS Institute uh, while I was looking at different options. You know, most PhD, MD, PhD scientists that, that decide to go down the academic path towards tenure um, have to make some really um, important decisions as to where they're going to do their postgraduate training. Yeah. And so I was looking around the country in different labs. I knew I didn't want to be in Boston anymore, um, but I wanted to look at, um, I think I was looking in Seattle, and I was looking at California, and I was looking at here in Philadelphia. Mm. And um, here's a, another example of mentorship as being very important. A guy named Milton Hernandez, who unfortunately um, passed on a few years ago, uh-huh. Milton was great because he would actually take it upon himself to mentor uh, scientists of color who are in training in the pipeline, and a wonderful person. And he worked for the uh, NIAID, the Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases mm-hmm. at the NIH, on the extramural side. And so he and his colleagues there were constantly reaching out to um, graduate so, students, postdocs, to recruit them to the NIH. because Going NIH, to labs and, and yeah. uh, saying, have you thought about the That's NIH? Right. Yeah. Yeah. He actually called me on the phone, I'll never forget. He said, Chad, have you considered NIH and working for Tony Fauci, the head of it? I said, no. I said, why would I even think that I was good enough to do that? And he said, no, Chad, said, you really need to yeah. think about that. Yeah. And he, he was the one who actually encouraged me to apply. And so I did. And at the time, I thought I was going to go to Seattle. Of course, my wife wasn't happy about Seattle because she grew up in Florida. Oh, you were married by then? Yeah. yeah. Oh, you, yeah. Did you marry in Atlanta? Yeah. And then moved to Boston together? Although, my, yeah, no, the other way around. So my wife, when, when I went to Boston, my wife had completed her undergraduate program at Emory, uh-huh. which is where we met. Yeah. And then was working um, in the Emory Women's Center <clears throat> and helped to do some wonderful things there. And she's in education, so her passion was education. Yeah. So she was looking at graduate programs in education. So I encouraged her, actually, to think about Harvard, because I was going to Harvard to do my research. Yeah. And so you know, I had to like convince her, because she wasn't sure that she would uh, be competitive. I said, no, you'd be great. So she applied to the uh, Harvard Graduate School of Education and got accepted into the master's degree program. And so off we went together. Oh, great, great, great. So yeah. I was finishing my uh, dissertation research, and she was finishing her master's in education at the same time. I see. And then you're, okay. All right, so then... So we're both in Boston, yeah. uh, finishing our degrees. We finished. She started working for a nonprofit uh, in the Boston area. I was doing a postdoc, and then we were thinking about where our next steps w- would be. I was thinking of Seattle, and being that my wife is from Florida, and she actually, you know, likes sun, uh, she said no. But she must have been sick of Boston, too, then, at that point. Oh, yeah, very yeah. much so. Yeah. Um, so... We, we were looking, and then Milton came along and said, look, you know, you should apply. And so I did. And uh, long story short, um, I liked Dr. Fauci a lot, and a lot of respect for him. Yeah, of course. And the work yeah. that he's doing. And um, we hit it off. He being from Brooklyn and me from Philly, yeah. we spoke the same language. No, I learned a lot from Tony. I learned a lot from him. Uh, scientifically, he taught me a lot. And that experience was very important in shaping um, my outlook, my scientific outlook, both in terms of career as well as what's possible. You founded a company, Nanovec, I think? That's correct. And I wondered how I wondered how you got that interest, right? I mean, it, I thought maybe you picked it up at Harvard because there's a lot of... No. no was at I was a purebred academic in training. I mean, I, I had no interest in the private sector personally. Until um, NIH. Until NIH. And the reason for that is because... So we, I landed at the VRC after spending some years in Dr. Fauci's lab, learned a lot. And at the VRC, it was interesting, that was a construct, a government construct specifically set up to produce a vaccine against a variety of uh, viral targets, one of which was HIV, the other was hepatitis. But you recall, after 9-11 hit, one of the things the government was really concerned about was bioterrorism. Yeah. The release of any kind of um, anthrax, and from anthrax to smallpox to Ebola, um, those bioterror uh, potential for those um, pathogens being released as bioterror agents 
was very high on the government's list of concerns. I remember, yeah. So the VRC actually was an attempt to address that. Then, the, But the threshold event or watershed event for me was um, not just 9-11. It was what happened with the Chiron. And the oh. company ran out of flu vaccines. The nation oh, yeah. ran out of flu vaccines. Yeah. Because Chiron's um, facilities, which were located at the time in England, I believe, um, the manufacturing facilities, um, they had some contamination. So they had to throw away all these I, mean, I remember this, yeah. millions of doses. When we ran out of flu vaccine, I, I didn't have no idea how flu vaccines were made. I had just, you know, if you had asked me at the time, I said, oh, well, I'm sure it's like a, a plasmid vector that produces yeah. the virus and you know, it's gene... Uh, genetic engineering that, that uh, saved the day to uh, uh, solve the problem of manufacturing a lot of doses, right? Quickly. Well, yeah. <laughs> I scratched the surface and found, you know, that no, flu vaccines were made on chicken eggs. Yeah. And I just scratched my head like, what? That's crazy. You know? And so um, some friends uh, of mine who were scientists, one was in the industry, in the biodefense industry, working for a company. The other one was finishing his PhD at uh, Rockefeller University. We sat down at the table in California at a research meeting together, and we were like, you know, we can build a better system than yeah. this. Yeah. This, this is crazy. I mean, what is, and it's, at the time, it was like 2003, yeah. 2004. And so we sat down, and we thought about it, and um, we came up with s some ideas around a new platform that was scalable, um, easier to manipulate and uh, synthetic in, 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 its, um, in its nature. And so that's the basis for Nanovac. And so I had a decision to make. Was I going to stay uh, inside the government uh, doing research or become part of the administration? Or was I going to leave? Yeah. So it took me, like, I would say six months to sort of get to a place where I was comfortable with leaving. I, so th this is a big, you know, this is a big deal, right? This is, it's kind of, I don't know that it's a big deal when you are um, running your lab at Harvard and you started three companies and the VCs come and they say, we want to, we want you to spend something out. But when you're, yeah. when this decision is like, well, it's going to change the trajectory of my career. And I yeah. think like you did an honest to God friends and family around, right? Yes, you had I to go out. Yeah. That, I, I liquidated my 401k. I went to my parents and they wrote a $10,000 check on the spot. And then probably the hardest conversation was with my parents and also with my father-in-law. Because I went to him and I said, you know, I'm thinking you about... You for money? Well, I didn't ask for money, but I said, look, I'm thinking about leaving my position. To start a company. To start a company. And he looked at me and he said, I'm glad to hear it. Here's really? a check for 15000 I mean, but they... Did, did they even understand the science you're presenting no. to them? So this no. is just on faith of who this you are. This was, we're supporting you. Yeah. And that's what friends and family is about. Yeah, I know, but it's got to make you, it's got to be nerve-wracking, right? Well, it, for me, it brings tears to my eyes because it was affirmation from my parents who are not scientists, yeah. they're not wealthy, but they were supporting their son. Yeah. And to have my father-in-law, um, you know, his daughter, my wife, is the apple of his eye, you know, say, look, you know, I believe in you and support that. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. My mother subsequently passed uh, due to advanced. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Metastatic breast cancer. Um, so when I look back on it, I think about, you know, what that meant for her and my father to write that check. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big moment. So how did you, did you... I mean, I, you know, I don't, I've never started a company. I don't know anything about it. You must not have known a whole lot about it then. How did you learn? How did you, what did you do with the money? I didn't know Jack Dilley's what. 
I think what differentiates those successful entrepreneurs from the ones who um, are not are the ones who acknowledge the fact that they're on a journey and there are going to be some things that you're going to have to learn. Um, and you have to develop a central hypothesis around your business value proposition yeah. that has to be tested. So um, one of the things that I was honest about with myself was that I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. Um, but I am a great student. I'm very good at learning and humbling myself to say, I don't know. So if I don't know, my cup is empty and I can fill it with new knowledge and new understanding. So that's what I did. I left the government, raised the money, incorporated the company, started dealing immediately with the lawyers around intellectual property. And that was a very interesting set of experiences. I loved it. Who, who's? Where did you find them? Were you they... know, I went to a couple of law firms in D.C. that dealt said... specifically with intellectual oh, okay. property. Okay. And it was fascinating to be in that world. I mean, it's, it is its own world. Um, I ran into some really, really cool people. Um, um, there's one firm in particular I really appreciated their um, compassion. They didn't charge me a lot of money. The partner actually sat down and sp spent time with me. You know, for a partner, who was yeah. probably billing at, I don't know, five, dollars $600 an, an hour, hour. Yeah. Yeah. to just take me to lunch and say, hey, look, you know, here's my advice. That's, That's nice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. it doesn't get any better than that. His name was uh, Jorge Goldstein, actually. Who, who, and the thing about Jorge, which is phenomenal, not only was he an outstanding lawyer, but he's a scientist himself. So oh, okay. he could speak yeah. the language and yeah. understand and translate that. No wonder he was interested. Yeah. yeah. He's a great guy. I mean, I really enjoyed talking to him. And um, there were some others that I ran into that were just absolutely phenomenal. Uh, there's a woman named Betsy Hannes and a few others. They were all great. And so they taught me a lot. And so along the way, as I was developing the business plan, um, I sort of got in, engaged in the ecosystem. I had friends out in California who worked for Genentech, so I got a chance to meet folks out there. Uh, on both coasts, yeah. east and west. Yeah. And that really transformed my understanding about what biotechnology is and how does one take an idea off you know, the shelf and bring it, breathe life into it, literally, yeah. in, in yeah. the marketplace. Yeah. Um, and it is a process. And so the other thing that I remember at that time was that, you know, as you, as you said, after 9-11 and after these, you know, envelopes with white powder were showing up all around yeah. the country, that the government opened up their purse strings fairly well, yeah. as you said, for... Uh, out of fear. Yeah, out of fear, exactly. Yeah. We don't have anything to defend yeah. if there's some sort of biological agent that's been yeah. released. So were you able to tap into that? Was, like, yeah, so it's an interesting or? point because one of the mechanisms that government um, agencies fund critical research in areas like biodefense is through what is called SBIR, or Small Business yeah. Research Grants. A lot of people don't know about SBIR grants, um, but they're phenomenal. I mean, it's kind of what makes this Biotech country work, great. really. Yeah. Yeah. So, yes, I started looking at SBIR grants. Uh, we started to uh, also look at partnerships with academia. So, the, um, so like this friends and family round, that was sort of like now I have the money to open the doors, like like get a patent or incorporate the company yeah, itself. Incorporate and also for me to be able to, to do what I had to do, which is reach out uh, to potential board members, mentors, um, travel to the West Coast, East Coast, uh, sites where um, there were meetings, like the bio conferences, conference, yeah, yeah. so forth and so on. Partnering meetings. And that was important. And then the SBIR grant allowed you to say, okay, now actually we've got, I don't know, I don't know what right. size grant you got, but $100,000, $200,000 to begin <clears throat> trying to build this company further. So I leveraged the initial friends and family round to get um, institutional support from some state-run VC, uh, what's called venture development organizations here in Pennsylvania. Brought the company, so it's about 2006 now at this point. Yeah. I brought the company back to uh, Philadelphia where I grew up. Um, and then was successful in getting an additional tranche of funding. And just as we were uh, receiving that, I know where this is going. the market went south. Yeah. And uh, the, the Great Recession hit. Yeah. And, uh, you, know, you know, part of the underlying assumption of the friends and family round is that you have uh, individual and personal resources to, well, you know, we bought our first home. Yeah. And so, you know, when the real estate market went out, um, I couldn't draw any yeah. funds from from any kind of investment we had in our home. 
and I'm not from a wealthy family. Yeah, oh, so, yeah. And this isn't your third company, right? No, so you've never exactly. had that payout, right? Exactly. So then, how do you? And then um, some of my business partners went down a different path. So I ended up holding the company together myself until what I thought would be a, an opportunity to to get in front of either another biopharma company I wanted to partner, or yeah. and so when the market was south, the investors left. And so we put the intellectual property on ice, and there Nanovac basically sits. I thought I thought it's I thought you pivoted and it, it was called <coughs> well, Regen we, or something. Yeah. Or? So in the in the um, in the time between the launch of the company in two thousand four five I think five officially, and the market going south in two thousand seven and eight, we pivoted. Oh, I, I, we I see. renamed the company not Nanovec but Three Gen Vaccines. I see. Okay, okay. So when you, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs tend to listen to this, but when you've done that, you've done it once. You learned all those things that you learned, mm-hmm. but you did not um, take it public. There was not some big buyer at the end. No. Like, do you think you could do it again? Do you think you could get? Oh in yeah, front yeah. Of, You know, so, sometimes these when when entrepreneurs start companies, they get the bug and they just yeah. that's all they want to do. Whereas you, you're, you know, I think you have sort of pivoted away from that too. Well, personally, yeah, but I think for me, uh, it was an f- absolutely phenomenal experience. I wouldn't trade it for the world. Yeah, it opened up my eyes. Uh, it taught me a lot about myself in terms of risk tolerance. If you had asked me, you know, twenty years ago, would I be doing anything remotely close to this? I said, no, you're crazy. Yeah, I just thought I was a pretty dyed-in-the-wool academic. Um, but part of that is a large part of that is because I just never had the experience of um, been exposed to it yeah I haven't yeah. been exposed to it um, alright so I think I want to talk about uh, you know these are things that you and I have talked about before so I want to talk about the United Negro College Fund I want to talk sure. about your role there and then I think I want to talk about um, well I want to talk about the uh, Ernest Everett Just program too but sure. let's start with how did you get associated with uh, UNCF so when the company uh, went south the, the market went south investors went away the recession hit yeah Obama was elected. Yeah. While I voted for him and would vote for a third and fourth term of Obama, um, I didn't believe it until six months later. One of the things that you mean, you mean you didn't believe that it, you're like this actually oh, happened? Yeah, it took my it took me like like my wife was constantly saying, "Chad, that it, he's it's president. over. He's in the he, White House. Yeah, it's really him. This is not some weird conspiracy to you know fool you, trick you." Yeah. That you know, a black man was actually elected president, um, but for an African American, um, that event was—I don't know how to describe it—seismic, right? It was, I mean, yeah, even that doesn't do it justice because it undid, um, in an, almost in an instance, all all of the things that you grow up believing aren't possible. It basically just erased that. Yeah. In a moment, in a flash, and you're did, left with like, "Wow!" Did you uh, think you'd never see that in your lifetime? No, are you uh, kidding me? Who did? I don't know. I mean, I think I probably no black thought, person did. Oh, no, seriously? No, hmm. you kidding me? I mean, I couldn't Look, have put my I, finger on I, who I, that came. I saw was. Obama's first speech on the steps of the State House in Springfield, Illinois, that cold day when he stood up and gave this at the DNC. You mean? No, the, when he launched his campaign. Oh, oh, okay. In 2006, or uh, you know, late 2006 yeah. or early 2007, yeah, formally, yeah, he stood on the steps, the state house, in Springfield, Illinois, on a long black coat with a scarf around his neck, talking about his candidacy. And I sat there, watched about. I mean, it was a long speech too. He went on forever. He's good at that. Yeah, but I, you know, I listened to about maybe 15, 20 minutes of it. And I said. Wow, there's a handsome brother with a decent haircut, but he ain't gonna make it. <laughs> I mean, I was. I even said that to my wife. I was like, "Man, I feel so, I feel so badly for this guy. He's trying so hard. He's trying so hard. I mean, he's got a funny name. Come yeah, on, that's true. I come on, get that. that. Yeah. I even wanted to call him and say, "Come on, man, just you know, it's okay. Why don't you run for like senator or yeah. something? Oh, yeah. he is a senator. All right, yeah. uh, governor. You know, president. Come on." But even, so as the candidacy built, right? You, I still you, believe. You were like, ah, I can't believe he's still on the pack. He's yeah, still on exactly. the pack. And you're like, it's not going to... Well, Iowa changed a few things, yeah, right? Yeah. I went to Iowa, and I was like, oh. What about night of the election? I mean, we, we trusted the polls more back then, but night of the election, did you think, oh, this is I, a done deal? 
No. I was like, I told you, it took me six months. My wife kept saying, Chad, he's actually yeah. president. I was like, did they count all the votes? <laughs> Is there a recount in Florida that I don't know exactly. about? I was like, unbelievable. I do remember the night of the election walking. I, was, I live in New York. I did yeah. then, too. But walking around and hearing people talking about it. Yeah. And I remember hearing, like, uh, I passed two young African-American men, and they were like, and the polls were projecting Obama was going to win. And they were right. like, tomorrow, when he's president... I'm going to do this, and I'm going to go up to white person. I'm going to do this, uh, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the most collegial right. thing they're expressing. But I, I got it. They're like, just like what you said, like everything was about to change. Oh, yeah. You know, the whole concept of what the country could be was going to change. Yeah, it, it had a, um, it had such a powerful and deep psychological impact on both black and white Americans, but for different reasons. Yeah, for black Americans, it. Like I said, undid um, centuries of being told what you aren't and what you can't do. It just obliterated that in an instance. Yeah. And for a lot of white Americans, not all, but for a lot of white Americans, it also had a seismic impact on their psyche. And I think we are just now feeling the brunt of that yeah politically yeah you know you said something earlier I think I wonder like sort of where the where that fear comes from you said something earlier about you know uh, we I hate to I even hate to use these words like we have our own tribe sort of like well I'm right. a black person white person I'm a female I'm, I'm Latinx right. whatever and I think the fear of someone is like well oh geez if there's a if there's a black person in the White House and they are only going to pull for their tribe they're going to try to bend the law to their tribe, right? Which is something I think African Americans have been dealing with forever. There's always been a white person in the White House right. who is governing basically for their tribe. And I wonder if that was some sort of, I wonder if that was part of the, yeah, you know, the so. feeling, you know? It's unfortunate because I think Obama went out of his way to not do that. To not do that. And yeah. also to try to figure out what are the common core issues that all Americans face regardless. Well, that's what made him a good president. Well, I mean, in my opinion, I'm like, that's what some, the president should do. To some, it also was the reason why he was, in their view, not mine or yours, but their view, why he, he wasn't fell short. Do. Yeah. There are some black folks who feel he should have been a more pro-African-American or had pushed for this or that. And I'm not going to suggest that there's not some legitimate basis for the criticism, but um, some of it borderline is borderline irrational. And then, of course, there's the blatant racism that yeah. he faced. Yeah. And, you know, senators saying it's their mission to make sure he's not a successful president. Um, and in essence, tearing down the country. Yeah. Um, and how the, it's interesting. One of Obama's first speeches as president is worth revisiting. It's the one he gave to the National Academy of Sciences, I believe, in 2008 or nine. I think eight, um, where he talks about his vision for where he thinks the country should go with regards to the importance of science and technology. And you think about and contrast that with where we are now. Yeah. And it's like night and day. We're now in this weird dystopian, a factual um, alternative universe where knowledge is abhorred and facts are treated as if debatable they're debatable or even um, problems to be dealt with and truth and reality are are um, sometimes divorced from each other and treated like things that can be manipulated by the, those who are perceived as being strong the strong man yeah yeah and how that plays itself out in terms of the critical nature of science and technology and solving major problems like climate change and um, deforestation and the destruction of ecosystems, human health even, the provision of health care. Yeah. I mean, things that affect the planet, basically. Yeah, yeah. We're like 
night and day <laughs> from that speech. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I totally, I totally agree. After he's elected, yeah, so after he's elected, um, and I had by that time begun to put the company's intellectual property on ice, yeah. so to speak. And so I actually, while I was becoming a um, tech entrepreneur, a biotech entrepreneur, I was also becoming a social entrepreneur. And I was looking for a way of engaging students at the K-12 level that would be transformative and have impact. Yeah. Now, at the time, I wasn't sophisticated enough to understand the principles of lean startup and how that could be applied in a social setting. But the core of what I was trying to do was just that, high-impact, scalable solutions. And that's what I was searching for while I was parallel in parallel pursuing my interests in biotech yeah. entrepreneurship. Yeah. So by the time I landed in D.C., and I was launching Nanovac. I was also launching a nonprofit that was focused on, in essence, STEM education ah, okay. and tech entrepreneurship. And so that led to, um, in 2009 and 10, I met some other uh, individuals around the country, the formation of what became a nonprofit called the America 21 Project. So I began to push into those areas that, quite frankly, before. You know, when I was um, a grad student or a postdoc, I never thought about it, really, to be honest with you. But I came to, into that space organically through my own experience, yeah. but also, by extension, looking at what was going on within the black community and how we were basically sealed off from these opportunities. Some of it was just we weren't aware of them. Yeah. You know. Others, there were structural uh racism and yeah. concerns that prevented, you know, if you don't know where to access capital, how are you going to raise money gonna, to yeah. support your business or yeah. your startup? Yeah. So in 2009 and 10, that's what I started doing. As the company was on ice, Obama was in political ascendancy. I then went to the White House and got it through some contacts, knocked on the door and they opened and said, what do you want to do? I said, well, you know, I love what the brother president is saying, yeah. but ain't nobody at the ground level listening. Yeah. So they were like, okay. So let me work on the ground level. Yeah. So I was like, let me work on the ground level. They said, fine. So it was an office that he actually created um, in the White House around urban affairs uh -huh. that was doing some really cool stuff. And that's how I got plugged in. That eventually led to an engagement with the Office of Science and Technology Policy, or otherwise known as OSCP which is really the White House and federal government's brain trust around STEM and the tech industry, yeah. the federal perspective on the tech industry. And that's when I, that my eyes really opened up because I began to understand the impact of policy and practice from an economic development standpoint. Because I could see for the first time how these discussions and debates around federal policy is how you push out or allocate capital through a federal agency to support um, young entrepreneurs or startups, i.e. NSF's I-Corps program. Uh -huh. you know, I saw for the first time, oh, this policy stuff actually does matter. Yeah. And there are people inside the government that really care about this stuff. In 2012, um, that led to a summit that the White House OSTP um, hosted co-hosted, actually, with uh, the Mitch Kapoor Center Foundation out in California uh -huh. around tech inclusion. And from that, I raised my hand and said, look, you know, if you're going to talk about getting more um, African Americans into the tech industry in Silicon Valley and other places, at some point the conversation has to uh, focus on historically black colleges and universities. Yeah. Yeah. At the same time, um, I was talking with UNCF about their, at the time, their aspirations as an organization uh -huh. to pivot around STEM, recognizing that, you know, to their credit, UNCF's leadership at the time was trying to figure out how do we, as an intermediary organization that represents the aspirations of historically black colleges and African Americans at the higher ed level, how do we serve 
as a more uh, robust advocate for STEM education yeah. and so forth. And they asked me if I would be interested in joining the team. I said yes, but only if I could grandfather the project that was emerging out of the White House into the UNCF. And they said fine. And so that's what. That's how you got it. That was the spark. Yeah. With the flame. And then, uh, so let's talk about the Ernest Ever Just Award. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, one of the things I learned at Harvard was that uh, the rich get richer. Yeah. <laughs> and, and tax law is meant to. And the wealthy get wealthier. Yeah. And one of the uh, net outcomes of that is if the rich get richer, they have more resources to allocate to R&D. Harvard is what it is, right? Harvard was incorporated before the country was incorporated. Is that true? John Harvard uh, was walking around where this country was even founded. That's amazing. Right. So theoretically speaking, there's no way to value eight Harvard's real estate holdings because uh-huh. it was all in pounds and pence, right? That's, I learned a lot from that because from an institutional standpoint, I could see while I was there at Harvard what that meant in terms of the institution's ability then to continue to build upon its wealth, its scientific wealth, yeah. because it could invest in resources, more resources being poured into infrastructure. So there was a new school of public health built while I was there from, in essence, leveraging the Harvard brand and endowment to raise, you know, probably close to $100 million just to build that infrastructure. Yeah. HBCs don't have that. Yeah. You know, and not individually, that is. And so what that taught me was the role of capital in R&D and science, that you could have the most brilliant ideas, but where they're going to do the research immediately becomes a real estate issue, particularly for biolife sciences, unlike IT, which is virtual. Yeah. You have to actually have a physical place yeah. and some pretty expensive equipment yeah. and uh, pretty you know, high-level infrastructure um, of the type that Harvard and MIT and University of Pennsylvania and Columbia and so forth and so on have here on the East Coast. When you go to HBCUs, you see the struggle. It's not for lack of intellectual wealth or capital, but real estate and real yeah. capital, financial yeah. capital, is lacking. And so... All that to say, when I landed at UNCF as a scientist, one of my major goals was to figure out a way to leverage um, the legacy of UNCF historically and the present-day capabilities of UNCF to have a transformative and positive impact on the life science capacity and infrastructure at our HBCUs. Uh You're, if you come into that mindset, you immediately run into Dr. E.E. Just. Because in essence, that's what he was trying to do over 100 years ago at Howard University. He was born in the, like the late 1800s, I think. And, and so this just a, and, and, and died in like 1941 or something like that. So that's the time frame that we're dealing with it. Yeah. So then, so he's a perfect person to use as a name for this concept of um, putting down fellowships. Tell me how that works. A group of us, African-Americans in the life sciences, got together. We formed this organization called the um, AALS that morphed into the NABB, National Association of Blacks and Bio. And we started talking about, could we institutionalize funding that would specifically support um, high-level research being conducted by competitive productive African-American scientists. But when I landed at the UNCF, for the first time, I realized, hmm, we could actually do this. Like, it's possible. You know, it's not... And of course, Obama being elected, then all things were possible. Right, yeah. yeah. I could, you know... You could tap the White House, right? You could ask the White House about it. I could paint a red S on my chest and stop an asteroid from (laughs) hitting Earth. I don't know. Everything was possible at that point, right? So, yeah, I mean, I thought about, well, gee... UNCF is a fund. It's a privately held fund yeah. to support the aspirations of African Americans. Well, hmm, isn't that what he just was trying to do? Yeah. So I thought about it and I said, well, given the experience that we've had with Merck and we've learned a lot from that experience, 
how can we pivot from that and begin to articulate and define some construct that would aggregate capital to specifically support um, capacity building at HBCUs in the life sciences, research that's going on at HBCUs around life sciences, and the broader network of African-American life scientists around the country, whether or not they were at HBCUs. Or yeah. not. And that was the basis upon which the EE Just Institute for the Life Sciences was born. born. Yeah. And it's so it's partnered again with Merck? Or it's now partnered with Merck, who is helping fund these fellowships? No. no. So the Merck relationship sunsetted. Uh, we then, through that engagement, met some folks at Bristol-Myers Squibb. Oh, Bristol, I'm sorry. So yeah. Bristol-Myers Squibb, actually, is the first funder of, besides UNCF, yeah. the first funder of the e Just Life Science Institute and specifically the uh, fellowship, uh, the postgraduate fellowship in the life sciences. So I'm happy to say that we just identified our first two um, fellows oh, you did. in that program. And uh, one is at Columbia and one is at Duke. And both are African-American women. Um, but also it's like, I think you're now partnered with Genentech too. That's correct. Right. So, so you're spreading of, this. Yeah. yeah. As of two weeks ago, we're happy to say that we were a recipient of a uh, grant from the Genentech Foundation. The end goal is not just to um, focus on African Americans in science, but to focus on uh, how to ensure that the diversity of thought and capabilities, as evidenced by African Americans, will have a positive impact for the world. You know, but when I was, I read a press release, I think, when maybe when you announced the Bristol Myers thing, but you said something in there about just. And you said that uh, his his intelligence or his his science was um, like, like brilliance shining against the backdrop of a difficult time for African Americans or something. And I and I thought and that struck me because that was like that was nineteen four that was nineteen forties nineteen thirties, and like that's applicable today. Yes, it is. And I, I not do, much has changed. No, I, I'm, like you know we've talked about this before too. That progress has been made. You can look at the sure. numbers, and there are more African Americans going into PhD programs. That's and, but. Is it disheartening that it's still this intractable? I mean, it's frustrating. I mean, let's be clear. It is frustrating. Um, I know a lot of African Americans uh, who are in the life science research world who struggle to get funding and support, and they're brilliant. Yeah. You know, they're quite capable of producing great insights into biological processes just like anybody else. But they struggle, you know, and... It's not a fair struggle. You know, there's, there's a good struggle and then there's an unfair struggle. Yeah. And that's right now it's an unfair struggle. So I think this is an attempt to address that yeah. in a sustainable way. With the, with the concept being sort of like, okay, the more people who make it through this pipeline and become life science researchers, then they are also um, uh, sort of like a, like a beacon right. where younger people can see them go, oh, that's right. something, it's sort of like when Obama became president, that exactly. is something that I can do, I can, I can achieve that in my yeah, life. And, and yeah, exactly right. And, and you want to connect the dots. So those senior scientists that we fund, hopefully at some point, junior scientists, or in this case, the Bristol-Myers Squibb Fellowship Program, uh, trans, postdoc scientists transitioning into a full-time position, you want them to serve as role models for the next generation. So their labs become sites where African-American students can arrive. Yeah. So now you're incentivizing them, and you're also reinforcing the notion that African-Americans can support African-Americans, which I firmly believe. So do you think, you know, we were, we were talking about this, we were walking in here, but you're, you're an optimist at heart about it? Optimism is, uh, I don't know if I would use that term. I'm faithful. Um, you have faith in it. I have faith in it because I believe in it. And I believe in it because I think it, it can happen. There's a um, strain of optimism, I guess, that runs through. Um, but I don't know if I would say, um, I'm certainly not cynical and yeah. I'm certainly not pessimistic. Yeah. But I don't, I don't, I think, I don't want the label of optimism to dampen the reality or take away from the reality that it's going to take hard work, and it's going to take uh, 
um, there are going to be times where you know it doesn't look like it's possible. But if you have faith and it's aligned with um, how the universe is moving, then I think you will, in the end, overcome. Thank you. Thank you. All right, there it is. First Rounders podcast with Chad Womack. Thank you, Chad, for um, putting aside the time and meeting me and having this conversation. We talked for um, a good while, uh, nearly two hours, and I had to edit this down into a sort of palatable size for for listening, um, which means some things got left out. So I'm going to put a post in our bioengineering community about this podcast with some extra information. There's a book that Chad mentioned. I will dig that out, throw up a link. Uh, he mentioned the speech that Barack Obama made when he announced his candidacy for president. I will find that speech, um, a transcript or something, and put it up there as well. Um, and anything else I can think of, I will watch our Twitter feed. I will put that on our Twitter feed. Our handle is at Nature Biotech. Anything else that I should say? I do not think so. Thanks for listening. Thanks to the Midwest Quiet for use of their music in this podcast. And that is all. And goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.